This is The Guardian. Hi everybody, Max here, uh, recording a second voice note. You won't hear the first voice note. Anyway, the news about Gary Lineker returning to presenting duties uh, broke after we finished recording the pod. It doesn't really change the substance of the discussion we had about impartiality at the BBC, what happened with Match of the Day, and obviously the humanitarian crisis that leads to uh, desperate people getting on dinghies to to try and get to this country. But uh, Gary Lineker has said, I'm glad we found a way forward. I support this review. I look forward to getting back on air. The BBC Director General, Tim Davies, said everyone recognised this has been a difficult period for staff, contributors, presenters, and most importantly, our audiences. I apologise for this. Uh, he also announced uh, uh, an independent review on the BBC's existing social media guidance uh, with a particular focus on how it applies to freelancers outside news and current affairs. That match of the day without a theme tune, without presenters, without pundits, and without commentary was a one-off or a two-off. I didn't watch match of the day too, but we discuss it in part one. Then we do the football and the rest of the pod. Hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. If nothing else, a great week for presenters, pundits and commentators as people realise they really do help make football a lot more entertaining than perhaps it actually is. A 20-minute match of the day where even the theme tune refused to cross the picket line and it seems Gary Lineker's humanity could lead to the unravelling of the government or the BBC or both, but probably neither. What have we learned? That the law on BBC impartiality is very much the handball law of the corporation. No one quite knows what it is and it's interpreted differently every day of the week and there are a depressing number of people who have no compassion for a humanitarian crisis that ends up with people risking their lives to get to the UK. There was football. Arsenal imperiously see off Fulham after City keep the pressure on with a win over perennially 12th Crystal Palace. Casemiro's played over 500 games, so there's no way he could commit a foul bad enough to warrant a straight red card. Paperless helps Bournemouth to a big win over Liverpool. Spurs turn up a week too late. Everton win the Get It Launch derby. Jack Harrison should trust his right foot a little more. And can Kai Havertz get goal of the month if there was no one there to commentate on it? Also, today rugby pitch markings kind of new detective show reviews and duncan ferguson and the vegan croissant all that plus your questions and that's today's guardian football weekly on the panel today jonathan wilson welcome morning how are you doing i'm very well thank you hello troy townsend good morning max and hello noradine chowdhury Hey, mate. Uh, just to say, uh, Barry is not uh, standing with Gary Lineker and not appearing on this broadcast. He's at Cheltenham for his 50th birthday week celebration. So we'll uh, we'll wish him happy birthday next Monday. Matt says, will this be a silent pod and only 20 minutes long? JC says, will there be any expert analysis or will it just be the goals? And Paul says, after their two-footed challenge on Gary Lineker, are the BBC not that sort of state broadcaster? It's important to say our audience is about 50% in the UK, 50% around the world. And this is a story that is front page news in the UK and not probably not registering anywhere else. And it's clearly about more than just football. Um, it's about alleged state interference with the public service broadcaster and the future of the BBC itself. We'll try and get into all of it um, in part one. So here's what's happened uh, if you haven't followed any of it. I think everybody knows who Gary Lineker is. Uh, he hosts Match of the Day, which is the BBC's flagship Saturday night highlights programme. It's a brilliant football programme. There's no, no other way of saying it. Uh, last week, Lineker responded to a video message by Suella Braverman, who's the Home Secretary, about stopping people crossing the English Channel in small boats. He wrote, good heavens, this is beyond awful. When challenged by someone on Twitter, he defended his comments, saying, there is no huge influx. We take far fewer refugees than other major European countries. This is just an immeasurably cruel policy directed at the most vulnerable people in language that is not dissimilar to that used by Germany in the 30s. And I'm out of order, question mark. Braverman later responded, disagreeing with the characterization and saying the comparison to 1930s Germany was irresponsible. Now, there are impartiality rules in place for people who work at the BBC, which extend to their personal social media accounts. According to those guidelines, it is stricter for those that work in news and other factual areas that regularly deal with a range of public policy issues. Lineker had been warned before, and on Friday afternoon, he was stood down from match of the day. At the time, the BBC said, we have never said that Gary should be an opinion-free zone or that he can't have a view on issues that matter to him. 
but we have said that he should keep well away from taking sides on party political issues or political controversies. A BBC spokesperson later confirmed that Lineker would be off air until an agreement was reached on his future use of social media. This was like the BBC pushing its biggest domino. After that, Ian Wright and Alan Shearer pulled out of Match of the Day. Other pundits and presenters said they wouldn't do it. Then the commentators pulled out. Football Focus was replaced very late doors on Saturday morning by Bargain Hunt. Um, Saturday's Five Live output, which is their radio station, was severely affected, as was Sunday's WSL coverage and Match of the Day 2. And I've been in touch with a few people. I'm sure you guys have as well. Um, I don't want to name them, but in their words, pretty much universally, they said this has been an absolute shit show. Given we are Football Weekly, we're going to go from the least to the most important and start with the actual coverage itself. What we ended up seeing, 20 minutes of match of the day with no theme tune and no commentary and no hosts. Dave says, how amazing was match of the day without those lefty liberals and their boat-loving analysis? It was great. No nonsense, no narrative, no discussion, just cold, hard, ball-kicking. That's what we love about football, isn't it? It's not the highs, lows, and emotion of it. It's the ball-kicking. Wilson, we moan about commentators and pundits, but you do really need them, don't you? Yeah, I mean, I, I watched that 20 minutes of match of the day on Saturday. I don't even remember a second of it. I, I just, I, you know, it just didn't stick in my head. I, I, I didn't realize I needed somebody to tell me what I was seeing, but it turns out I really do, and I certainly need the post-match uh, interviews and the the analysis to sort of crystallize. Okay, this is the important bit of the game. This is what the discussion is going to be. But I also, and you know, it's it's obviously different when you go to a game and you you you, know, you get the team sheet and you you sort of you see how they lined up on the pitch and for ninety minutes you're watching the players. So you 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 know, you. you you, you know who they are. You, you know, the position on the pitch gives you a clue who they are. You, you, you recognise them. You, know, you, you learn the numbers over time. When you've got a, a, you know, a three minutes of, of brief clips, you're like, "Who's that? Is that is that Watter? Is that Verber? Is that Jesby Hall?" It's it's almost impossible to work out who these people are. They're tiny on the screen. <laughs> and then Watter doesn't even have Watter on his shirt. He has Dango on his shirt. And it's like, oh, I think that's the same bloke. But is it? This? Oh, I don't know. Um, so, I mean, if I were a Bournemouth fan, I'd be really annoyed this weekend because, you know, one of their great results, one of the great results in their history. And does anybody remember anything that happened in that game? I sort of vaguely remember Salah missing the penalty, but don't remember a huge amount else. I mean, hopefully some of you have remembered something by part two when we actually talk about it. Yeah, I mean that would be ideal. Um, no, I watched the game. I watched the game live, so it's 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 fine. But some of the um, games lower down the bill, I I I think I will struggle with. And I apologise for that in advance. That's okay. Yeah, I mean the thing is, Noz, we all go to football matches, and we don't have commentators when we're there as a fan. But you've always got you've normally got someone you're sitting next to, and quite a lot of the game, which isn't that interesting, you're talking to them about something completely different. I, I don't know what you what did you make of this whole situation? It's been, I mean, sort of fascinating actually from a sort of media perspective no absolutely and yeah j j just to reiterate anyone who says that uh oh it was good because it was just like going to a game it obviously isn't because you don't you don't watch a game in a vacuum you, you have people around you you have people slagging off the referee or contesting a decision and then you have like the pub before and and, and after the game and, and and there's all that chat so it's nothing like going to a game i love all these people sort of like saying oh isn't it great isn't this better it's not. You're the kind of people who, when when the country first went into lockdown, said it was great. Oh, I can spend more time with the missus. Oh, I'll make some banana bread. I don't know why I'm doing Bernard Manning, but, but like it's... Bernard Manning's banana bread recipe was... First <laughs> yeah, Whatever else you want to say about this banana bread, top drawer. And if they bring back stars in their eyes, it's not who I'd expect you to say tonight, Matthew. <laughs> <laughs> going to be Bernard Manning. I mean, I'm a bit, I mean, politically correct uh, stars in their eyes. I mean, it's a lot of mileage in that show. I, I mean, wouldn't that be the ultimate insult if, if I had to white up to be Bernard Manning? <laughs> <laughs> no, but it obviously wasn't better. And it's interesting because sometimes the kind of criticism we might get on, on this podcast is like, why aren't you discussing this? offside or why aren't you discussing this red card and the reason the reason we don't go into minutiae like that is because it's already done so basically we've got the luxury of the football stuff is already analyzed and then and then we can have like a second take or sort of like look at funny things or or look at sort of like the bigger picture and 
without that, like everyone sort of like has a laugh about particular pundits that they don't like, but they they do like the ugly work of just going through the details. You're saying they're they're kind of they're Lee Catamol so that we can be <laughs> we can be gooty. Lee Catamol's a is, very good pass of the ball. Like believe yeah, Lee Catamol. Okay. I, I, I do. Um, Troy, what did you make of it? Well, I didn't watch any of the match of the day highlights or lowlights, whatever you want to call them, or match of the day too. But commentary means so much to so many different people in so many different ways. And if you haven't learnt that over the weekend, you know, silent football is definitely not the way to go, is it? <laughs> Listen, it, it's it's been an absolute shambles, isn't it? And And not really wanting to comment on the way it's all gone down but the solidarity part of it has been amazing for me to see and witness you know the kind of collective force that has grown over the last few days the kind of collective force that I've wanted to see potentially in other areas of our sport to be totally honest and there we go but it is what it is I decided that I was going to watch half an hour of Sky Games so I will be up to speed more than Jonathan no doubt no change there (laughs) it's just incredible but uh, you know think of what what Gary was talking about think of what his supporters were talking about you know we've got a government that not many people trust and they've gone down the route and then the BBC have followed that route and it's backfired massively and it's massively important to raise it Max on the part one here I'm, I'm, I'm really sure about that yeah, um, uh, some people did enjoy it. Um, quite a lot of Conservative MPs enjoyed Match of the Day. And they don't know, tracking back, they didn't seem to tweet about Match of the Day a lot until this Saturday, including, for example, Scott Benton, uh, the MP for Blackpool South. Best Match of the Day episode in years. Had all the goals in, as Cian uh, uh, says. If Match of the Day finally showed all the goals last night, where else have they been hiding from us? It said, uh, no expert analysis, finished quicker than usual. Expert, obviously in inverted commas, finished quicker than usual. I could make the pub for last orders. What's not to like? Shrugging shoulders emoji. Uh, Matt says, do you not remember last week's episode of Match of the Day? Just before Reese Nelson's belter hit the net, Match of the Day cut to Gary Ninica reading Marx and burning a Union Jack. Anyway, uh, let's get on to the BBC here because it has unraveled, and you made this point on the radio yesterday, Wilson, which I think is really important, is like Lineker, Shearer and Wright grew up in dressing rooms, right? They understand a team mentality. And that's where this has all snowballed from. Them dropping out enabled people who are lower down the food chain to, to make that decision. And it is much harder for people the lower down you go to have any sort of power in situations like this. Yeah, and it was important that the commentators did drop out because if you'd had much of a day with commentary and no punditry, that wouldn't have been as good as usual, but it would have been a, a, a at least in some way viable. Without wanting to to assume knowledge of people's financial positions, my guess is that the pundits don't need the money. They're not as reliant on that job as the commentators. So for the commentators to, to stand down, I think is a really brave step. You know, the, the pundits, a lot of them work for other broadcasters as well. You assume that they, they, you know, they've certainly had the opportunity to have enough wealth from their playing career that that, you know, losing a gig is not going to harm them. Commentary is an incredibly competitive world. There aren't many decent gigs out there, and so for them to risk that, uh, I think is you know is, is an incredibly laudable step, and I, I think we should salute that. Uh, but and it was them that that meant that match day was a farce rather than just being a you know a slightly different version to normal. Yeah, in terms of impartiality at the top of the BBC, some people have pointed this out, and a lot of people have pointed this out on social media. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, presenters like Andrew Neil, Jeremy Clarkson, Alan Sugar, and for balance, Chris Packham have all sent political tweets without being suspended. Then you have the BBC Director General who has stood on a platform of impartiality, and obviously he may be completely impartial when he walks through that door, but he was Deputy Chairman of the Hammersmith and Fulham Conservative Party in the 90s, stood unsuccessfully as a councillor in 93 and in 94. The chairman of the BBC, Richard Sharp, is at the centre of two investigations over his appointment after it emerged he donated £400,000 to the Conservatives and allegedly helped facilitate an £800,000 loan facility to Boris Johnson uh, just weeks before the then Prime Minister recommended him for the job. Obviously, we're the Guardian. We are sort of centre-left, I guess. I I'm, I'm not, I don't know what all your political persuasions are, but I don't imagine there are many Tories sitting on this Zoom call, so maybe we're not balanced. But it seems very difficult for the BBC. I don't know which one of you said it. You know, They're making one rule for people who tweet on the right and one who tweet on the left. 
But I mean, look, look at look at even yesterday, Michael Portillo on his GB News show was attacking Lineker. Well, that is clearly taking a political position. Does do his train shows on BBC get cancelled? Are they still running? Are they still are they still on? I don't know. His gentle pink chinos <laughs> just walking down the Orient Express. Maybe, maybe. Are, are all reruns of that going to be going to be stopped? Uh, you know, you, clearly not. I mean, that you know, irrespective of the original issue, you you cannot have a blanket ban on freelance presenters talking about other issues because if you do, you'll have literally none of them left. It's just, I mean, it's an unworkable and absurd ban they've tried to impose. If they follow it through consistently, they will literally have no presenters to present things. Nos? The thing with Gary Lineker is, what's changed? Did he suddenly start talking about refugees? Did he suddenly start having an opinion on Twitter? He's been doing that for ages. He's been doing it for years. It's so weird that it's all blown up now when he's he's literally been doing the same thing and he's it's not as if like he's had a quick sort of turnaround and got all political or humanitarian. He's literally been doing it for years. I'm sure he's tweeted stuff that's been far more sort of um aggressively sort of against the Tory party and 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 and, and no one's said anything and, and now it's blown up and it's again it's the BBC making a massive uh issue out of something that was dying out and sort of petering out. There's a couple of things here for me. What compromises there gonna be Jonathan spoke very eloquently about the commentators and those others that didn't want to go out there and do their trading support and turned up in solidarity. I will continue to worry about their space. Quite rightly, the pundits don't need it. Shearer and Wright were on Premier League show yesterday, so they continue to work. The, the commentators are the ones who actually could find their opportunities limited. There's a funny way around this that people will, will I can't take it out on Gary, so we're going to take it out on others. And those others that came out in support, they're still going to be in our, in our kind of thought process about what we do later on down the line. So I think this support needs to continue because it may not impact on the highest figures, but it could definitely impact on those who we don't normally see you know, front and centre of our screens. Yeah, I mean, it's possible, you know, it is, and I, I, I haven't looked through to see if Lineker has met, made a comparison with Nazi Germany before, and it's possible that that is the moment where they said, well, hang on, this is this is a line. And there are impartiality rules, whether we like them or not with the BBC. We don't, obviously, they're interpreted, it appears, not very consistently. Barney, Ronnie's made that point about, actually, you know, you can say this is bad without bringing up the Nazis. Jonathan Friedland saying, look, the Conservative government policy and language on refugees are foul. They are not a match for either the policy or language of Germany in the 30s. As Lineker tweeted, when the Home Secretary speaks of desperate people as an invasion, she dehumanises them, and that is appalling enough. But even in the earlier stages of the Nazi dehumanisation of the Jews, both the words and the deeds were worse. It's interesting, actually, Craig Foster, a colleague of mine and a you know human rights campaigner, as well as a, like a brilliant football analyst, analyst says... The problem is not that Gary Lineker challenged the demonization of asylum seekers and the normalization of the language of dehumanization that has always preceded and legitimized hate and exclusion, but that too few have. And we've had quite a few questions about that, saying Lawrence said it could send a powerful message of solidarity to your media colleagues at the BBC if you didn't discuss any of the football and instead focused on the proposed asylum bill, dedicating the whole pod to fact-checking some of the discourse around refugees. Cormac says, I completely understand Football Weekly as a sports podcast. Maybe you could at least discuss the actual bill that sparked the meltdown. Lineker's tweet has received far more scrutiny than it merits. I 100% back Lineker. Surely scrutiny of the bill is what import is what's important. I'm just going to read a bit more of Jonathan Friedland's piece. You guys, please jump in afterwards if you want to. It says, the proposed new legislation would, in the words of the UN High Commissioner on Refugees, quote, amount to an asylum ban, extinguishing the right to seek refugee protection in the United Kingdom for those who arrive irregularly, no matter how genuine and compelling their claim may be. Some might read that sentence and think the obvious solution is for genuine refugees to arrive regularly. The trouble is, for most people seeking asylum in the UK, no such route exists. There are schemes for those from Ukraine, Afghanistan and Hong Kong. But for a person fleeing from somewhere else, there is no office they can walk into, no form they can fill in, a small boat or the back of the lorry. 
might be their only way to safety, yet the government wants automatically to deny such people the right even to apply for asylum. Instead, they will be detained and then deported within 28 days. Where would they be held? Where would they be moved? The government has no answers. Numbers from the Migration Observatory show that the UK is, in fact, a laggard when it comes to taking in those in need. The UK granted asylum to 13,000 people in 2021, a fraction of the 60,000 taken in by Germany, much less than half those admitted by France. Spain, Italy and Greece all took in more than we did. In other words, this is not some unique challenge faced by Britain. Far from it. Asylum claims went up across the entire EU last year and globally we are scarcely doing the bare minimum. The biggest refugee populations are in Turkey and Colombia. Germany is home to 2.2 million refugees. In Britain there are 232,000. And the point is this, Troy, isn't it? That this is a global issue. I understand that we are not experts on this, but it is clear that if you want to have a be a compassionate society you have to do your fair share yeah but i'm not i'm not saying it's not complicated and i understand you know the way the world is looking at this but we've got to look at our country and what our country is doing in this space and for far too long we have kind of tried to make sure that our land is our land i saw a picture the other day the sea is a very daunting space coming across at night, coming across with, you know, small boats, coming across with so many different kind of people on those boats. And it seems that we haven't got a care in the world about how they travel, how they arrive, what state they're in, and to try and eliminate them all in a way that is not humane. I don't know, is unbelievable. But we treat people in a way that I didn't think I'd ever see us treating people in this country, to be totally honest. And whilst other people, other countries have better figures, this shouldn't be about figures. This should be about what is right and what is not the, not the right thing to do. And that policy quite clearly, although I'm not a politician and I might get stripped apart here to, this morning as well, it, it just doesn't, it does, doesn't bode well for me. It doesn't bode well for us as a nation, as we continue to converse in this space. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I haven't got much more to say on it. I've probably not said some of the right things, but it's just it's just me, you know, as an individual that doesn't like to see lives being lost as people take risks to try and live their life in another country. And there's lots to say about that. I get that. Yeah. I don't know, and today in Focus, other podcasts, other news outlets will do that probably much better than we will. But it's just finally on this nos it's it's an accident of birth isn't it that's that that is the difference between me sitting in this kitchen in melbourne and not needing to get on a dinghy absolutely and and, and it's that thing of like just treat people like humans no one wants to risk their lives no one risks wants to risk their family's lives or have their families ripped apart to try and uh cross the water and, and sort of risk all sorts of dangers it's out of desperation, and it's and it's that thing. Uh, just to echo some of what Troy was saying, is that uh, it's not a one-sided thing. It's not a case of, oh, they're coming here illegally, so let's stop them. It's a case of, well, what's the flip side of that? How do they? How can they get over here legally? Because they are refugees who need refuge, who are humans who need help. Otherwise, they die, or, 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 or otherwise they're involved in, in in wars in their country, or also. So it's it's that thing of always look at the other side of the line, and and, it, and it's a little bit like how uh, anyone who who's watched uh, I Daniel Blake has seen how various governments have have treated people who are are trying to uh, live in terms of get getting jobs and being on benefits, and it's the solution can't be to make it harder and harder and harder for people to to get the benefits that they should be getting when they can't work. I think the biggest thing about in this whole in this whole situation and and I appreciate that people think it's a pantomime why we're talking about a millionaire sort of uh, presenter but that's that's got all sorts of issues to do with um uh free speech and everything which are really important but it's about humanity it's about dealing with people as humans and Gary Lineker, however you think that he may have uh, constructed his argument or whether he should have mentioned 1930s Germany, the basis of what he's saying is these people are humans. They're not boats. They are humans. They're not invaders. And they it's not even a case of they want a better life. They just want a life. All right. That'll do for part one. We'll be back in a second.
Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, now, uh, Guardian Football Weekly is doing a thing. We require pictures of you with panellists from the podcast, not ones where you've met us at a live show, kind of, you know, panellists in the wild. If you were at school with uh, uh, Faker others, or, you know, if you were in that football team with Barry or whatever it is, Please email us those photos, footballweekly at theguardian.com. I mean, look, they can be modern day, but just, you know. So there was a, a man bumped into me at the MS at St Pancras the other day, took mm. a selfie. I mean, that would be a very boring picture, but to be honest, it's better than what we've got so far. So yeah, if, you yeah, could, if, if, if that man could send it in, that'd be great. Yeah, footballweekly at theguardian.com. Are you going to use the photo of Troy with... Uh... Fiona Bruce. With Barry and Fiona Bruce. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure who, who owns that Fiona Bruce uh, cutout. What's going on there? It's definitely not me, Noz. It's definitely not me, that's for sure. <laughs> I was greeted by Fiona at the door. Um, and then when it, when they revealed it was me, everyone was shocked. So, yeah. Um, Barry's surprise 50th birthday party involved a cardboard cutout of Fiona Bruce. I presume it's, it's an in-joke with those at the pub, and I don't dare go to that pub. Apart from, of course, when I'm filming tribute videos uh, to a mighty stool slapper. Right. Fulham nil, Arsenal three. We got to the football in the end. Uh, Arsenal win five games in a row in the Premier League, restoring their five-point lead at the top. And another game, Wilson, where before it you're thinking, this could be tricky, and it really wasn't. They were, in that first half, just sensational. Yeah, I mean, if Fulham had played as well as they did in the second half and the first half, it might have been very different, but Fulham were were dismal first half. I think that's been a, a pattern when when Polina's not been there, that they, they, they lose so much from the midfield. But Arsenal... Completely dominant. And you saw so many different facets of what they can do. So, you know, the, the goal from a set play, you know, the, the sort of really interesting set play of having six players behind the back post to sort of get around the zonal marking. Then you saw how they could play around a press. Odegaard's calmness in the box. Yeah, that, that first half was a really, really good performance. And then second half, you know, we didn't have to do anything. And yes, they came under a bit of pressure and Fulham could have got one back. And maybe if they had early on, maybe there would have been a bit of a wobble as we saw for Arsenal at Brighton. Uh, a couple of months ago. But, you know, it's an easy game when you're 3 0 up. Should we talk about Leandro Trossard a bit, Troy? I mean, a hat trick of assists, a brilliant signing, if perhaps not like a really exciting one when it happened. The idea of getting a sort of Premier League ready player, and it, it does feel like he's been there for years already. He's got to be the, the January signing, hasn't he? The, the big one is the, the piece that Arsenal needed to be different up front, you know? Jesus has been brilliant, obviously, and obviously returned yesterday. And Ketty has done a marvellous job to replace him for such a long time. But I think Arteta worked that out. And, and yeah, there were moments where Enkete scored some great goals. And I think I said on the pod a while ago and got a bit of a backlash for it, was that he needs to be more clinical. And that's very hard for someone that scored quite a number of goals. They've now got movement and creativity in that front line that is scaring me because it could get them over the could get them over the line, you know. Trossard has, has just seamlessly gone into that team and has made them better. And it would have been very hard to have made them better than what they were. But he has and, and it's and it's quite simple to note. The creativity he's got, the understanding he's developed already with the rest of the squad, the rest of the team, is quite visible to the naked eye and his performance you know, yesterday was everything that Arteta would have wanted. I'm not sure other people would have seen, but Arteta would have wanted to actually now the fact that he was a major purchase for them. And I know they, they, they bought Jorginho as well. And obviously he, you know, he's done his little bit, but he's now back on the bench, but that Trossard signing will go down. If they get over the line here, that Trossard signing would be a major, 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 major impact for Arsenal. It had already and will do for the rest of the season, I believe. Um, no, as I know Arsenal fans would like us just to focus on this season, but this doesn't, it doesn't, maybe it's too early to start talking about this. It doesn't feel like a one-off. You know, it feels like what has been set up here is, you know, this could be, not necessarily years of domination, but just suddenly years of real stiff competition for, for, for City and presumably if Liverpool come back, or, just, you know, at the top of the table for Arsenal. Oh, completely. Because because usually what you'd be doing is you'd be saying, this is Arsenal's golden chance. They'll never get a better chance to win the league. X team is going to improve. Y team is going to sort of have loads of money pumped into the transfer window. But with Arsenal, this feels absolutely sustainable. And the thing that's been so impressive about Arsenal is that they they, they found a solution to everything. 
even even this weekend, I think the thing that um, Arsenal fans should be pleased about is now it's got to a point where checking Arsenal's results is either boring or annoying because they've either won easily, like 3-0, or it's that thing of where they're 1-0 down or even 2-0 down and there's 20 minutes to go and you kind of think, I'm going to check this and that 90 minutes plus four, Arsenal have got have got it back. At this stage of the season, what would ruin Arsenal's season would be the pressure and it getting to them and they're playing playing this great football, they're, they're playing sort of in a really relaxed way, but suddenly when it really matters, the bottle goes and there's no sign of that. This this 3-0 victory over Fulham was so important because it, it was so easy and they're playing as if it as if it's August or September and there's... There's no real pressure and so much of the credit needs to go to Arteta for that because I think for a lot of people, he started to annoy them a little bit. There's something about the way Arteta conducts himself in a really intense way that can rub people the wrong way, but he always seems to have an incredible self-belief and even when Arsenal weren't doing particularly well, he always had that self-belief and conviction and, and belief in himself and what he was saying. And that's that's clearly where where this confidence and this uh, mind frame has has come from, and and that thing about um, this thing being sustainable and it going beyond this season. I always think uh, a good barometer of any team is when you look at the team, you look at starting eleven, which is uh, for a successful team would usually be very good, and you kind of think, as an opposition fan, who would I want to get injured or suspended from that team to totally derail them, and. The way Arsenal played and the way Arsenal have coped with players being sort of uh, injured or whatever, it's hard to pick who you'd who you'd want out of that team because even like it used to be midfield, but then they then they made a really sort of astute signing in Jorginho Trossard, as, as Troy was saying, has, has made a huge difference. They, they they they're just finding a solution to every problem. I was slightly annoyed that I couldn't be annoyed because my Mikel Arteta didn't celebrate too much during this game. So I, I couldn't get angry with the Nova celebration because it was very calm and measured. Um, uh, Man City kept the pressure up the day before. They won 1-0 at Crystal Palace. It wasn't a modern-day classic, Wilson, but I know you watched more than just the three minutes highlights <laughs> of this. So 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 let's do some business on it. Um, they could have won this four or five, couldn't they? Well, they could have, but they could easily draw it nil-nil as well. I mean, it was a daft penalty to give away. They, they got them the goal. True. Um, I mean, look, City were far the better team and, and you play that game 10 times and they win nine of them. But this wasn't far off being the 10th. And that's, I mean, that's where I slightly disagree with Noz that I, I think this is a better opportunity for Arsenal than they're likely to have next season or the season after. Because I think City, for whatever reason, aren't at the level that we've expected them to be and that you assume they'll return to. Uh, that they, It feels like they haven't to grind out results. Now, yeah, they're still winning loads of games. They're still clearly a really good side. Um, but it, it's not quite as as fluent and not quite as dominant as they have been in the past. And and this game was a was a, ended up being a struggle for them, despite the fact they they dominated it. And Palace now are in twelfth. You said in the intro, didn't you? They've been twelfth forever. Sean says, "Is how are Palace still twelfth? We've been twelfth since the World Cup." <laughs> Does the pod think we can finish twelfth? The first Premier League team on record since oh three oh four to fail to register a shot on target in three consecutive games. It's, I mean, but they are, they're sort of the start of the bottom, Troy, aren't they? I mean, the bottom of the table is absolutely fascinating. Well, they, they were clear and now they're only, if I'm looking at it, they're three points above Bournemouth. They've got Brighton in midweek, which obviously is a massive game for the fans, but, uh, you know, takes on massive amount of significance because a loss there doesn't go down well with those fans. And Vieira said that, it, you know, he is under pressure. I think it would be wrong to sack him if that's the case. You know, they didn't spend money in January, did they? Which, you know, many teams are finding now that if you don't add one or two additions to bolster the squad and to give everyone a little bit of hope, then then you could find yourself in trouble. There's a there's a massive gap between 12th and 11th. So Villa have got 11th. They've got to start picking up. Well, they've got to start getting shots on target because you're only going to get a point without the shots. On none in none in three games. None in three games is objectively hilarious, isn't it? If you go week in week out for Palace, um, you think about the creativity in that team. Elise Eze, who seems to be bouncing from the bench to starting back to the bench. He obviously doesn't trust any of the forwards. Um, he doesn't trust any of the forwards. He's got his trust in Ayu and he's. And obviously, Wilf has come back. But normally, Wilf comes back with a little bit of an explosion. 
and maybe he's saving it up for the Brighton game on on, on Wednesday. But yeah, they they are in it. They are in it massively, and I think they'll realise that now. If depending on the result that comes against Brighton, I love the idea of saving it up in the post match saying. Uh... You don't really have any shots on target. Went now. Nah, didn't want to today because we've got a big game on Thursday, and and actually that leads us to Liverpool uh, losing at Bournemouth because they did use up, didn't they? They used up all their goals, as Sir Giles says. Did Liverpool use up all their goal budget against Manchester United? Dan, the laws of football logic mean we now have to agree that Bournemouth are eight goals better than Manchester United. Graham, are Liverpool back or not? Can we at least acknowledge the endless confusion is absolutely hilarious? Uh, well done to paperless billing with the only goal of the game. And actually, Nas, for Bournemouth, this is, considering what happened at Arsenal, to take the lead relatively early and to hold on against one of the bigger teams who are on good form is brilliant. And, and I feel like we write them off. I've written them off so many times this season. And every time you just finally say, well, that's it for them, and they go and do something like this. Completely. And, and, and again, uh, I heard a non-BBC commentator say something like, and, and it was when Bournemouth were, were beating... Uh, Liverpool and it was like oh they're still uh, favourites uh, one of the favourites to go down and I thought that's so unfair because they're playing so they're playing so well and again like you look at the table I mean first of all every, it, it seems as if everyone's too good to go down that's the weird thing you, you, you sort of say oh they're too good to go down everyone's too good, good to go down and everyone's a tough game obviously when, when there's a relegation scrap or when there's a race for the title you look at a fixture list and it's kind of impossible to say what's a good or bad fixture list to have because everyone's good. Everyone can take points off each other. And in terms of the table, is this the perfect permutation? Because sometimes you get a situation where there's a runaway leader. Sometimes you get a situation where there's there's about four teams that are roughly in the title race and it feels as if there's a big drop off and, and that's Champions League zone up. But this this table at the moment, is it perfect in terms of from twelve to bottom, everyone's in a, in, a, in a relegation scrap. Arsenal and City are going for the title, and then from third to maybe seventh with Brighton, everyone's got a chance to get in the Champions League. If you take out the Europa League and the Conference League, is it only Fulham, Brentford, Chelsea, and Villa? that are kind of that mid-table that are just bobbing about. So you're basically saying this is the greatest the Premier League has ever looked since... I mean, you might be right. It's so perfectly sort of um, balanced. I, I, I just I just wonder, is, is this is this the perfect scenario in terms of we always complain of like, oh, there's a massive gap between top four and, and fifth or there's a massive gap between whoever's leading or, or it's a formality that at least two clubs are definitely going to go down. Like, this might be perfect. There's always the third division in Germany where every team has 11 <laughs> points or whatever, you know, like, like literally you could. I uh, do you agree, Wilson. I, I, I think it makes a lot of logic that, that point. No, I mean, I, look, the, the table's more stretched than it would have been 25, 30 years ago. But, but in recent times, I agree. And I don't know if that's a, a World Cup issue. I don't know if it's to do with the extreme wealth of the Premier League compared to other teams in Europe that the, basically the Premier League's middle class has been able to feast on. France and Germany, Italy and Spain, and, and and yeah, that's raised their level. But but yeah, it's I, I I can't remember another season where whatever the live game is, you sort of feel uh, I, I quite want to know what happens. I'm going to watch that. I mean, I, I I confess I wasn't fully focused on Newcastle Wolves yesterday, but I'm still quite focused. <laughs> that's good. We'll, we'll find <laughs> out how in a bit. I, worth mentioning, Mo Salah did miss a penalty. Um, Darren Fletcher on, I presume on BT said he missed it by a mile, which is actually a bit of an overstatement, but it wasn't a great penalty, was it? But the ability to... Uh, I've mentioned Damien's penalty from home and away once, Damo's. That did miss by about a mile because it sort of hit the halfway line, if I remember correctly, and someone actually went and found it. Um, but but uh, this one was... Yeah, it was a bad penalty. And uh, yeah, Liverpool are weird, right, Wilson, aren't they? I mean, that is a weird... That's a weird week. They've scored 47 goals this season. 16 of them have come in two games. So more than a third of their goals have come in two games. So, yeah, when they get on top of you, they can absolutely rip you apart. But at the same time, when they're not on top of you, they're, they're nothing like the level they've been at before. Uh, let's do Spurs before the end of part two. Jack says, now that Spurs are good again, nailed on for fourth, who should Conte prioritise as his main signing in the summer? I mean, Troy, what was the point of Spurs doing this? Now, I mean, it's only Forest, right? And Forest has scored th- now four goals away from home. So beating Forest at home is not a great achievement. 
But even you could see they were trying to celebrate. It was a good day for a Charleston, but they knew really. They've still got to get themselves in the Champions League. It's the only thing left, and they've got to start putting a sequence of results together that makes them, you know, favourites for that. And at the moment, with Newcastle's game in, games in hand, they're not. Um, it was the perfect game to come back to after what's happened over the last few games. But actually, like you said, it was just about getting a result. I'm shocked that Richarlison started. <laughs> um, shocked, but to answer Wilson's question... I think he's on side. I don't know where they were drawing the lines from for two minutes that kept everyone in suspense. And you could tell the longer it went on, Richarlison, his blood was starting to boil because I think he realised <laughs> they are going to chalk this off. And I'm, I felt for him, but it, it, was, it was a great performance from him. Um, he needed that massively. And obviously he'll want to start. There's a Listen, he, he's going to want to start, isn't he? I always said that when Richarlison went to Spurs, if he doesn't get the game time that he demands, by the way, there's going to be a massive issue. There'll be a fallout. And, and there it was. But listen, it was a perfect game for Spurs. It was perfect to, to, to come back, but it cannot brush away what's happened over the last three games. And um, they'll be massively disappointed that they're obviously out of everything now, apart from battling for fourth. Uh, twice this season, Richarlison's been booked for taking his shirt off in celebrating, only for it to be ruled out for offside. <laughs> um, should rescind the yellow, really. I suppose there's an interesting question with him, Noz, is if Kane leaves, he is ready-made now to just t- to go and be Spurs number nine. Oh, completely. He's, he's, he's a great player. I, I do feel slightly sorry for Spurs fans in that everyone's just taking it for granted now that Kane should leave. And, he, and they could easily qualify for the Champions League, and, and in, in which case... Does that still apply? I think so much of the focus becomes Kane whispers, and really unfairly, like um, they'll get knocked out of the Champions League, and everyone will, will say, "Poor Harry Kane," and it's kind of like he well, he's he's part of the team. Yeah, he should, he could do something. It's it, it's it's such a it's such a strange situation, but yeah, Richarlison, I, I I love him. I think he's he's one of the great characters of the Premier League, and and. He gets so wound up over the littlest things and he's such a wind-up merchant as well. I think anyone who hates him would love him at their club. One of the greatest characters in the greatest season <laughs> where the league is at its greatest in the Premier League. Everything, Everything's great. <laughs> right. In football, brilliant. <laughs> Listen, it does. Um, I refer you back to part one. Um, that'll do for part two. Uh, part three, we're going to Old Trafford. Uh, welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, Martin says, will there be an analysis of the continued VAR vendetta against Manchester United? Two missed penalty calls, a harsh red that was much milder than Andy Carroll's unpunished season-ending tackle on Ericsson. I mean, that is true. Andy Carroll's tackle was bad. It doesn't mean other tackles can't be bad. Casemiro is the first player to receive two red cards this season, both straight reds. Uh, Eric Ten Hag said, when you freeze anything, it looks bad. Uh, <laughs> you could be referring to definitely chicken. Um, but but anyway, but but uh, everyone everyone who knows something about top football knows what is bad and what is fair. And Casemiro is a really fair player, tough but fair. It shows he'd played over five hundred games in big leagues and never been sent off. Now it's happened twice. He has been sent off twice for Real Madrid, but they were two yellow cards. This is the first two straight reds he's had. Um, Noz, you are a Manchester United fan, but objectively that is nonsense, from Eric Ten Hag. Casemiro deserved the red card for that. I genuinely don't think he meant to do it, but. Agree, agree. It's, yeah. it's that thing of being being reckless. I think you're right. All all the criticism comes from, yeah, but what about that? Yeah, but did you see that in the Leicester game? It's or did you see Fabinho? It's it's kind see of Harold Schumacher. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but it's I mean it was it was reckless because he wasn't in control um, and he had to go. Uh, I just loved, well, I didn't love, but uh, the fallout afterwards where everyone's consoling him and like Anthony's sort of pointing at his chest and saying, you're this club, you're Man United, like don't get down. And Casemiro, like before he came to this country, I had it in my head, proper shithouse, loved the nasty side of the game, really cynical, really sort of savvy. And I don't get that. I think he's... In a strange way, when he's when he's not destroying someone's shin with his with his studs, he's really wholesome. Not that kind of player. Yeah, yeah. I, I felt so sorry for him when he was so upset, and, and and I think this should be some kind of rule change where if somebody's really upset, 
like you can take a, a game up or something in terms of the in terms of suspension. There's been a lot of raw emotion, hasn't there, since the seven nil? You know, about Veghorst's tears when he said it's everything I imagined it would be with scuffing one in from a yard. It's, it's everything we all imagined it would be as well, Val. For that, um, Kieran says, does Casemiro's four match ban have the potential to derail Manchester United's top four? and trophy chances, apart from the Carabao Cup, obviously. They seem to be completely rattled when he's not on the pitch. Interested to hear Noz's views on this. So he doesn't, he's not interested in Troy's or Wilson's views on this. So back to you, Noz. <laughs> well, I think the thing with uh, Ten Hag is, is that he's very good at finding solutions. And even when United went down to 10 men, they actually played pretty well. And it was a really entertaining game. And, uh, and it possibly argue they played better with 10 men. But I think the question is more in terms of Casemiro himself. He's undoubtedly a great player, so important to the team. But earlier in the season, he was being described as the signing signing of the season, one of the best sort of signings anyone's made. But it's all about availability. It's a little bit like, in, in a strange way, it's a little bit like um, Anthony Martial in terms of he can be good or bad or indifferent. But if he's not on the pitch, if he's always injured that affects whether he's a good player. And the same with Pogba. Pogba's a great player, but if he's not on the pitch, he's not doing it. And therefore, it's redundant whether, how good he is. And Casemiro's will that mean he's, he'll have missed eight games of the season with with some kind of suspension? And and that, for this this season alone, makes him less of a valuable player just because he's out so much. Uh, two huge chances for Theo Walcott in this game. A header that he put straight at De Gea. That was still a good save. And one when he was cleaned through. And it was like he hadn't been cleaned through since about 2010. <laughs> <laughs> and he just he didn't know what to do, did he? But I, I get that if you're Southampton, right, you you would take a point at Old Trafford even if you, you know, if you were playing 11 against 10 for that amount of time. Newcastle beat Wolves 2-1. Uh, Lewis says, will Wolves ever get a penalty? Big moment of the game, Troy, at 0-0. Nick Pope, very lucky, even though I can't tell if it's a penalty or not. Because I don't understand why Jimenez doesn't just try and score. I'm with you, Matt. I think Jimenez has tried to create the foul to now the penalty rather than just be natural and potentially just be taken out anyway or just stroke the ball, attempt to stroke the ball in the back of the goal. Pope's flustered. It, it, it just full stop. He's flustered. He, he's never been great with his feet anyway when the ball's at his feet. But he, he's obviously flustered. And the minute he made that mistake, he obviously felt... Uh, that he, well, obviously he needed to recover it because the ball was in the box. But I think that there's a movement from Jimenez towards Pope that saves him. I, I'll be honest, it's one of those, it's touch and go, but I just felt there was a movement from Jimenez towards Pope that saved him. Although from another angle, you look at it, it looks like Pope has taken him out. But yeah, he, he's got to sort himself out because if he doesn't work his feet a lot better, then he's going to create issues for, for Newcastle passing the ball back to him. No trust in the keeper, having to go and play another way. I'm like Wilson. I tried not to watch this. I, that's the first time I've ever called you Wilson, by the way. I always think that's disrespectful. So I go back to Jonathan. You called me Wilson earlier, earlier today. Yeah. Did I? <laughs> you did. I'm yeah, getting yeah, comfortable yeah. then. I'm getting comfortable <laughs> then. I'm so quite sorry. Right. Quite right, Townsend. <laughs> yeah. it's, it feels like it's, it feels affectionate when I say it to, to, to I don't know why I don't call him Jonathan I know what you mean yeah but it doesn't feel right yeah. for me it doesn't feel right for me but never mind I won't call you it again Wilson for sure I'll tell you that it's fine because it's, it's, it's when when Johnny Lou or Jonathan Fadiba's on it it's, yeah. it's confusing right. so, yeah. um, so I've got yeah. no excuse basically that's, that's what you're saying and a lot of people call yeah. me Wilson it's fine Jonathan's an annoyingly long name it's quite hard to say yeah, so I'm fine long. with it I feel bad for you, Jonathan. I've been like such a long name. It must be so hard. <laughs> um, Nick Pope has a bad touch for a big man, I guess, doesn't he? And, and uh, but look, a huge win, Wilson, for for Newcastle. However, it came, they 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 really needed that, didn't they? Well, I mean, I I think it categorically is a penalty in a red card, and I, I think Jimenez is he's allowed to put his body between the defensive player and the ball, and that doesn't give a defensive player a right to take him out. But that aside, Wolves had, yeah, beginning of the second half up to the equaliser, they, they played okay, but Newcastle were much a better side for 70 minutes of the game. So they did deserve it. And uh, Almiron coming off the bench looked, looked really sharp again in a way that he hasn't for, well, uh, since he had that, that, since his golden run ended. So I think given the problems that Newcastle have had scoring goals, that, that's a real possibility if Almiron's back in form. Yeah, and Isaac had his best game, I think, for, for Newcastle, as far as I can remember. But like you, I was quite focused, but no more. 
than that on this game. Uh, to Ellen Road, um, the two kicks of Jack Harrison, um, of which definitely knows the own goal was my absolute favourite and possibly my favourite kick of the whole of the weekend's football. Just a man who is paid an extortionate amount of money to play football, going with his left foot when it was clearly the wrong choice. I love it. I love how to this day you kind of think every player should be two-footed and they're not. But but Jack Harrison is clearly two-footed because about how many, like, you know, 20 minutes later he he bends one in from 25 yards. It was, you know, no, it, was, it, was, it was a great goal. Uh, well, that was Patrick Bamford as well. Any Anyone hitting one in off the bar at Elland Road just reminds me of Tony Yeboa. I mean, obviously it was nowhere near as good as that, but it was still nice to see it. Everton won Brentford nil. Pure strike from Dwight McNeil there, Troy. Does he have the uh, the best left foot at Everton, are you saying? <laughs> <laughs> wow. There's a theme. There is a real theme going on every time Everton gets mentioned here. Currently, I think he does, yeah. Currently, I think he does, yeah. Um, listen, it was a great strike. It was a good move. Um, it's the kind of thing that Everton need to do more of, which is get at the opposition when the crowd is pumped and when they're high and when their focus is on supporting the team and supporting the team massively. <laughs> the Goodison crowd, you've got 60 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> uh, listen, no, but listen, they played well. It was a good game. Brentford, good quality on the ball. It's one of those where it's almost like the performance doesn't matter, but they kept the crowd alive and lively uh, for most of the game. I, listen, I spoke a couple of weeks ago and said, I, I don't know why Damari Gray isn't playing. Top goal scorer, but also a guy that's always a consistent threat. And I think Damari Gray now playing as the centre forward uh, or false nine, whatever they want to call it, has given them another option that they, they didn't have before. You know, we spoke about Mope, we've spoken about Young Sims, Calvert-Lewin is back, but he's not up to speed. And they just needed something slightly different. Um, and and Damari Gray has given them that. But yeah, McNeil, obviously one of Dyche's faves and and he's repaying him. He didn't really get going under Lampard and it didn't seem like his Everton career was going to last long. But Dyche has come in and he's brought Michael Keane back in and no one would have thought Michael Keane would have got back into that Everton squad. Um, and obviously he's getting much more out of McNeil than what Lampard ever did. Um, although there was a couple of efforts for, for Brentford in that one where maybe they'll be disappointed they didn't get something out of the game. If um, if Sean Dyche is playing a false nine, then football is nearing the end. Surely if anyone if, any, if anyone was absolutely bang on to play a real nine, it was a, a true nine, excuse me. And in that regard, I feel really sorry for Ellis Sims because he was on loan at Sunderland early in the season and got recalled by Everton. And I think he got seven in 17 for Sunderland, but yeah. Clearly not the finished product, but a very, very good player. And it, it feels a little bit like people have looked at his physique and thought he's a big target man. And he, mm. he's not bad in the air. He's decent, but actually, technically, he's really good. And it, Sunderland at the minute, because of Ross Stewart's injury, don't have a centre-forward. Gellart's come in, but he's obviously short on confidence out of form. And at Sunderland, he would have players close to him, which you don't get at Everton the way that the Dice is playing. So that game he played against Liverpool, you know, he, yeah, was, he was, was sort of one. 40 yards from anybody else chasing mm. lost cause. That's not his game at all. He needs players around him. He's very good at those little tight things around the box, which to look at him physically, you might not expect him to be. And I just sort of feel for him, if he were at Sunderland now, especially with Ross Stewart being out for the season, he would be playing regularly and he would play a type of football that's probably more suited to him. It does feel a, a little bit of a waste that he's he's gone back to Everton and, and isn't getting football. It does demand that Merseyside derby and which I think you're right, Jonathan, was totally unfair. They they let, let young Canham go to Preston and brought Sims in. And you kind of knew that he was only going to be a stopgap for a period of time. And that's what's happened. And I think it, it, it's definitely slowed down his development. That's for sure. Uh, Leicester won Chelsea three. No, it's the Kai Havertz goal is the greatest. After Jack Harrison's own goal, of course, the greatest bit of football this weekend. It was so good, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and Kai Havertz, when Chelsea were interested and lots of other clubs were interested... But what people were raving about was was the delicate nature of his football. Like, like there were even comparisons of, with with Burkamp in terms of his touch uh, and the way he finds space for himself. And and that that finish alluded to that. It was it was it was. It, I mean, the pass was gorgeous as well. But again, like like the, the thing with Chelsea is whether this is like a mini revival as, as people are calling it, or or just. Uh, they're having a, a run of games. They've just got great players. They've got so, they've got so many great players and a bench layer. I think anyone was gonna 
make it work. And in Kai Havertz and Enzo Fernandez in particular, like absolutely stellar world class players if they can can make it work. And 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 obviously with Felix as well, it's just a case of can they make it work because. Uh, um, otherwise, it's just a collection, a, a mishmash of, of players that are just playing for themselves. But th- there seems to be some kind of um, some kind of connection between them now. But uh, but yeah, all all the goals in this game were were great. Um, like even uh, Kovacic was that was a, that was a great finish as well. Yeah, I, Nick Stoll, who uh, who I work with, he um, tweeted that. The, even the relaxed celebration that Havertz goal made it, it feel like a goal scored. Every part of it feel like a goal scored at the end of a five-hour Sunday barbecue. It really had a jumpers for goalposts feel. Like no one's seen fast. It was absolutely. I thought it was so good. And that's a that Wilson's a brilliant week for Graham Potter. That isn't it? Yeah, very necessary week. But I, you know, I, if you looked at the XG, I think in eight of the nine first nine games after the World Cup, the first nine league games, Chelsea had the better XG. Uh, and they only picked up 10 points in those games. So I, I think the underlying numbers were never that bad. Um, even the Southampton game where they clearly were out of sorts, they still comfortably won that on the XG. So in a sense, I think this was coming. Uh, I think the back three, they look much more solid. I think getting James and Chilwell back, albeit James has sort of been slightly in and out, but getting the two of them back available, playing at wing back, I think that's been a big thing. I think getting through the Champions League has given them a lot of confidence. Havertz is playing as well as he's played at Chelsea. Uh, I still think he'd probably rather have number nine alongside him rather than having to be that 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 false nine. But him and Jeff Felix seem to have a nice understanding. The only question I have at the minute about them is this system doesn't really accommodate wingers. And they've spent, uh, what, 120 million between them on Mudrick and Madueke. So, yeah, where do they fit? But maybe that doesn't matter yet. But but that that, that would be the... The, the the question I'd have. Joe Felix hits the post a lot. And unfortunately, Troy, not on target. So, so you know. Um, finally, West Ham Villa. Um, Moyes out was trending on Twitter. He's trending all the time, isn't it? And, and, I, and I get the feeling that a lot of pundits and people who aren't West Ham fans go, look, he got them into Europe. He's a good manager. There's lots of people down there. They'll be fine. And lots of people go and watch West Ham and watch them a lot, Troy feel completely the opposite it's a bit like the sort of feeling there was about Jesse March with Leeds and Leeds fans mm, yeah I mean they were booed off again as well weren't they so it, I, I, it always seems like Moyes is one game away from from getting the sack and like I think again I said previously they seem to pull out a result and you know it saves him for another game two games or whatever else it may be I think he's very close. I don't think anyone can say that, that, again, as we've looked at this crazy league and I'm looking now and there, the thing that saves them is their goal difference at the moment. Obviously, Bournemouth have got an horrendous goal difference further up the table, not that far. Forest have got a horrendous goal difference and that adds a point to everybody. But he just can't get any consistency out of this team. He, he can't get any consistency out of them. So the results are all over the place. They had a really good result midweek, obviously, in the... Um, the Europa Conference League, but whilst fans wouldn't mind them getting to that final and how incredible, you know, a journey you've got to go on, the status in the Premier League for, for West Ham as a club is, is massive. And listen, there's not many games left. It may be too late to get rid of him now, but they've got to start improving somewhere along the line. And whether that's, you know, the front line, getting them and putting the ball in the back of net on a more consistent basis. It seems to be no consistency with the players there or whether it's defensively them being much more sound. Something's got to give because they can't keep one week, great result, next week, poor result, next week, indifferent result. I don't think that's going to save them. Uh, in the WSL, Chelsea went top uh, with a 1-0 victory over Manchester United. Sam Kerr is basically a cheat code. Uh, British has got an absolutely brilliant goal please go to uh, the Guardian Women's Football Weekly for more on that and the rest of WSL. Just a couple of AOBs for you. John says, um, please, a word on the Bradford goalkeeper getting confused uh, at Rodney Parade. Yeah, there's a rugby pitch there as well, I presume for rugby league. And uh, Harry Lewis was just standing outside of his penalty area and just caught the ball. And I, I don't think he was sent off, which I think is a kind of thing. He wasn't. It's fair enough because, you know, We've all played when there's like a hockey pitch on the line. So like, this is really annoying. I don't know. We've run out of play. Um, but it wasn't his fault. I uh, uh, The opposition probably slightly annoyed with that. Um, 
Thank you to the referee's assistant who disallowed Cambridge's opener against MK Dons for a player in an offside position, even though he wasn't interfering with play. We really needed that to stand. He was basically standing next to the goalkeeper, but I'm, I'm, I don't care. Steve says, after watching Duncan Ferguson's review of vegan croissants recently, is it time he got a TV series where he travels France reviewing other French cuisine? Has anybody watched this? I've never seen a man look so awkward in my life. I've never seen it. Oh, it was, I mean, to say it was cringy was unbelievable. Oh, I um, think he carried it off. I think he carries it off. You think so? If it, if it was any other player from uh, apart from Ferguson, you'd think, is he, is he being held hostage? But with Ferguson, you know he's not. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I, I love the fact that it's almost a situation like the results, the worse the results get, the more he's he's kind of being pushed into like an influencer, a social media star. He's going to start dancing on TikTok or, or unpacking stuff. <laughs> and I'm here for it. <laughs> Absolutely. And um, from Top 5 Records, finally, says, Max, have you been able to watch any episodes of the Death in Paradise spin-off, Beyond Paradise? My cat loves it. Sent a picture of his cat watching it. Wilson, have you watched? Have you started Beyond Paradise yet? Uh, I haven't. In fact, to be honest, I'm behind on this season of Death in Paradise. Um, but I did Me watch too. The, yeah. the Last Endeavour last night, which was a very, very sad, very, very, uh, oh, very emotional. Don't give it away. Well, no, no, it's just it's sad it's come to an end. And there's a lovely moment when he's in a, a, a black Jaguar and drives along a road and a red Jaguar passes him, uh, which is a you know, symbolically the handing of the baton from Endeavour to Morse. Yeah, I don't watch either of them, so uh, I just need to get onto them. Um, which is probably why I wouldn't have. What I, I mean, what I'd like now is I, I, I don't feel they fully exploited the Morse universe. I think we need to have the, the prequel to this. And Inspector Thursday and how he gets to that position, because I, I I just don't I I can't bear to think that there's nothing else. I mean, who is crime going to end in Oxford? It doesn't seem likely, <laughs> given the way they've had over the last forty years. <laughs> All right, that'll do for today then. Uh, thank you, Nels. Yeah, nice one. Thanks, Troy. Always a pleasure, Max. Thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. Cheers, thank you. Uh, Football Weekly was produced by Silas Gray, our executive producer with Max Sarnas, and Champions League this week will be back on Wednesday. This is The Guardian.